I am a survivor of a, a child sexual abuse myself. Mm. And uh, when I was about six or seven, six and seven, and then uh, grew up uh, feeling deeply ashamed of what happened, which is pretty standard for people who've been sexually abused as children, mm. that we tend to take the blame and the shame ourselves. We don't really blame, we're angry at the perpetrator, but we don't know how to, to cope with the guilt we feel. The reason he got away with it, or the, the abuser got away with it was, um, was because when I told my parents, they didn't believe me, so there was no, there was no, no attempt to bring the person to justice. Not that he got away with it, it was just w that in some way uh, society failed to bring him to justice. Society being my family, I suppose. A lot of the people I've talked to um, who have perpetrated sexual abuse would say that they were sexually attracted to children when they were 12 years old. Right. But often they would say from 12 to 20 plus, they never offended because there was no opportunity. But when they got to their 20s and they were, became priests or teachers or, or pastors, these same people who were conscious of this attraction all their their teenage life now have opportunity mm. to fulfil it. So a priest in that in that book says says to the person he accu who accused him says, oh, you know, don't don't kid yourself that you were the, the first because you were the, there was anything about you. You were the first because it was my first opportunity. I see. Like most people who have some sort of deviance, they've already convinced themselves that it's everybody else that's wrong right. and they're right and what they feel is right and what they feel is appropriate. Many of them actually believe that. Uh, one man I interviewed, one priest I interviewed said that he, um, he believed the children enjoyed what he did. He did wow. it for the children. Welcome to a great episode of The Discernible Interviews. I think there's a topic that we all are itching to hear about, and that is abuse, violence, domestic violence, child abuse, all of these things that are floating around in, in, in the media. We've decided to have a deep conversation today on that with someone who's been involved with it for fighting it for decades, someone who's been a bit of a groundbreaker here in Australia. Before we get started, we exist because of our supporters at Locals, discernible.locals.com. We produce a lot of this content for free, which is our great pleasure to do because of the amazing small group of financial supporters there. So go to discernible.locals.com to keep these interviews coming. This, my friends, is Graham Can. Graham Can is a uh, counselor for many, many years, has been recognized in many circles as doing some amazing things for um, violence, domestic violence. And one of the interesting things we'll be talking about today is his view on Power dynamics. He, he sees violence not so much as a power dynamic as, as is commonly proposed, but more as a guilt and shame dynamic. So this will be a very cool interview. Graham Can, thank you for coming. Thank you, Matt. It's good to be here. 
This is going to be a good conversation. So <laughs> let's let's start from the beginning. Why don't you give us a bit of um, obviously you're an author. We can talk about your book soon, but give us a bit of a background on your interest in violence and, and other, um, I don't know what you call it, mental or emotional issues right. in society. Well, well, my initial background is that I am a survivor of a, a child sexual abuse myself. Mm. And uh, when I was about six or seven, six and seven, and then uh, grew up uh, feeling deeply ashamed of what happened, which is pretty standard for people who've been sexually abused as children, mm. that we tend to take the blame and the shame ourselves. We don't really blame, we're angry at the perpetrator, but we don't know how to, to cope with the guilt we feel. And so I was 38 before I told the story at all. Wow. And although, um, although I'd gone into the ministry before then, um, Christian church ministry, I, I had never connected, you know, the themes of forgiveness with, with release from the shame. So even my wife, who had been married to for 18 years by that time, uh, had, did not know that I'd been abused. She knew I was a bit weird and she knew that I had sudden angry times, mm. um, not not violent times, but verbally violent times, probably. And uh, she could never understand it. Uh, it just didn't seem to fit what she knew about my character and what she knew about my faith convictions and whatever. And so she said, what's going on with this guy? And we were doing a training course in America and uh, we had to do all these personality tests. You know, I think we did hundreds of questions and then we got to sit with a psychologist. So I thought, if this psychologist gets anywhere near the truth, I'll tell him the story. Wow. And uh, so when we went, went in and sat down, he went through the test and he sort of pronounced me basically sane. Yeah. <laughs> Never asked me any questions about that until we got to the end. And I said, what about the drawings I had to do? I, said, I had to draw a house yes. and a tree yes. and a man and a woman. Yeah. Oh, he said, I forgot that. He said, yeah, they were really quite interesting. He said, when you drew the house, you drew two, two pathways, two front doors. And when you drew the tree, you put leaves on the bottom branches and none on the top. And when you drew the man and the woman, you did uh, tiny little waist, tiny little legs and big bodies and big cowboy hats. I said, well, what, what do you that? make of that? Yeah. And he said, well, I, I think you have got a very public area, time part of your life, which everybody knows about, and that you've got a private part of your life that nobody knows about. That'd be the case for all of us, though. Yeah, but it was, it was enough for me to say, well, uh, well, yeah, that's true. So if, the, if he, I said I'd tell him the story if he got that close. So, mm. so I did, and uh, it was just an amazing time. And we can talk about that later. So can you, what goes through the mind, or let's start with the child. Why do children, I was also sexually abused, but I, I don't understand why, I never really went through the guilt of it, although maybe, I'm only 37, so I have one more year before I reach the time where I need to come out. No, but what, why do children think it's their fault? Why, why, that doesn't make sense to me. Because I think there's two, well, for me, 
there were, and for many that I've talked to, there were actually two levels of the abuse. One was the sexual abuse itself, but the other was the, um, the, the abuse that came through the secrecy and being told you must not tell anybody. This is just between us, this is our secret. Yeah. And so there are, it's a double whammy, the abuse. It's not just one thing. Yeah. And that, that part, I think, for many people grows very powerfully during their young adulthood. Is that where the guilt comes from? Yeah, you're living with a secret. See, I never had that. So mm. my, my sexual abuse was normalized, mm. and I didn't realize I was sexually abused until I was an adult. Right, yeah. So I, I, that's probably why I don't have the guilt. Yeah, there are, there are many people like that. Uh, it was just part of their life, and they thought it was normal. Yeah. Uh, and there are others of us who who had fairly violent abusers or very powerful abusers who, who uh, made sure we thought we were part of a secretive thing that if other people found out, um, there would be a lot of suffering going on. So, so I had a lot of fear around that, that area. So, mm. so as you were married for that 18 years first, that you were hiding that secret? Oh, yes. I would never have told my wife that. Yeah, at that okay. time um, when I did it was an enormous relief but but during that time I would never have told anybody yeah. and so when it manifests into as you said verbal abuse or verbal violence what is what are we witnessing there when you're having outbursts verbally just flares of anger yeah but why what drives oh it could be anything it, it the anger could be triggered by by us running late to go out somewhere or yep. or by um, being asked to, or, or by being criticised uh, yeah. for something I have done, or, or being, even being assessed rather than criticised uh, in, in what I would have seen as a negative way. Yeah. But the abuse is a catalyst at the root of all that somehow. Yes. I, I well, let's just go back a step. Um, my, 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 theory that's built on talking now to hundreds and hundreds of people, probably thousands of people over the years. Um, my theory is that we, there are two primary painful emotions in the human experience. One of those is fear mm. and the other one is, is guilt or shame. Now, to some extent, they've been built into the, the capacity for fear and the capacity for shame are, are built into us. You know, when, when, when we see something that's dangerous, uh, our amygdala goes off, switches off the cognitive processes, switches on the, the uh, emotional processes and you run faster than you've ever run before mm. or you fight with more aggression than you've ever fought before. Mm. That's how we've been built. When, when uh, we have had any sort of trauma in our childhood and we, it, may be, it may be rejection, it may be abuse, it may be bullying, whatever it was, then, then our, our tendency to have triggers that set off the fear is far greater than it might be in some others. 
And so if, I'm, if I was criticised or assessed or challenged or distracted or interrupted or whatever it might be, I, I could fly off the handle really quickly. Mm. And my, my, my understanding is that I would feel afraid. And I would feel afraid that I was going to get hurt. I was going to feel the same feelings I felt when I was abused were triggering off the fear. And f we have ways of dealing with fear. Mm. Some of us will deal with fear by being angry. Mm. Some of us will get aggressive. Some of us will become controlling. Some of us will isolate mm. and withdraw. Mm. So we get fearful, we get angry, and then we, then we deal with that in our normal way. Um, so some, some men have, many men have abused their wives mm. in a time of anger, but I think it goes back to something has triggered off this fear within them or the shame within them, and now they are dealing with that. And they're dealing with that through aggression and anger. So this is different from the what I s opened the show with, this idea of power dynamics. So whether it's rape or abuse or whatever, I'm taught as a millennial, it's just about a power play, but you're, you're going beyond that, saying behind that power dynamic is yes. something else. Yes, I, I, I think one of the problems with the power dynamic is that there's plenty of powerful people or people who are controllers who have never abused mm. their, their spouse. And what, what I'm saying is I'm talking about something that's common to everybody. Uh, you know, we see it on the football field, we see it in the crowd, and we see it, we see it with um, driver rage, road rage, uh, that whatever it is triggers off this tremendous anger and hostility. We see it uh, sometimes with alcohol-affected people. Mm. So that anger and that, that uh, fear and that guilt that is triggered off is common to all of us. Mm. We all have reasons. They're all things, we all have things we're afraid of. We all have things that we are ashamed of. Mm. And when they're triggered, then we go into whatever our common reaction will be. Right. You understand? Yeah. So, so if my common reaction is to deal with it through aggression, that's how I'll deal with it. If it's to deal with it through control, that's how I'll deal with it. If it's to deal with it through isolation, that's how I'll deal with it. But this is a problem, Graham, because everything I've seen lately to fight uh, toxic masculinity or spousal abuse or, or, or sexual abuse or rape culture in colleges or all these things, the way we seem to be fighting it is um, looking at power dynamics mm. and, and empowering the weaker of the, of, the, of the pair. And we're not really focused on addressing, diagnosing or treating um, guilt or fear mm. at all. Yes, that's right. And, and it is different. And I found when I was working uh, with a government-funded program on domestic violence for 10 years, uh, we were running this program and I was, I was opposed often by the, the stronger, more, uh, more feminist type approach yeah. that, that it was all about power. And 
I saw the power often lay with the very people who were criticizing that perspective, my perspective. But, but what it was about was, I, 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 think, I think the cure became worse than the complaint in a way. What do you mean? Well, I, I, think, I think that attacking masculinity or attacking femininity are inappropriate things to do. Mm. Uh, and particularly at 20 years ago when I was working mostly in that, there wasn't the sort of emphasis on uh, the sort of sexual, political sort of emphasis that we have today. Um, and there weren't the same rules governing what you could say and what you couldn't say. But, but I think men became ashamed of their masculinity. Mm. It's like, you know, the enemy to society was a white middle class man. Especially if they're strong. Yeah. In any sense. Yeah. And so I, I know not everybody is going to agree with this, but I was looking for what is common to the human to human nature yes. that is going to lead some people to be violent, yeah. not because they're men, because women can be violent too. Yes. Um, and uh, their violence is not always physical. It's often yes. more verbal, but they can be very violent. And so, and men can be also. Men's violence is much more uh, physically uh, feared, perhaps, than than a lot. So yeah, I, I that's that's where I've come down. And and as a theologian as well, or a, a person who studies the Bible, I I realise that the two emotion, painful emotions that are first mentioned in the Bible are in fact fear and guilt. So ah, you, Garden of Eden. Yeah. So Adam and Eve hide because they, they have guilt. They've sinned and, uh, uh, and they say, and God says, why are you hiding? And he said, they said, because we're ashamed and afraid. Afraid. Okay, I see. Yeah. So what, can, can we extrapolate into the future then? If we're obsessed with power dynamics, it seems to be, you see, you see males um, abusing females, and the solution, the secular popular solution, is to increase the power of the female. Mm. So that's the only solution I see, to match the strength of the male, I guess. I don't know. Where does that lead us? We're not dealing with the guilt. We're not dealing with the fear. It feels like we're building a battlefield. Yes, we are. Well, I think we are. Yeah. Um, th there are, there's two things we need to look at here. One is primary how do we deal with it in a primary care situation? That is, it's already happening. And how do we deal with it in the situation where we are uh, trying to change the culture uh, so it doesn't happen? Mm. I think when we're dealing with people who have been abused and they are trying to recover, from, particularly from domestic violence, then what I've said is not a lot of help. Right, it's acute. Be, yeah. because, because they know how their husband is, or, or abuser has responded mm. and they have been left with all the scars and the fears and so on. However, what, what is helpful is when the, the survivor is able to see that their current behaviours post-abuse 
are driven by the fear that it's going to happen again. Right. And that's why a lot of them make the right decision and leave their their relationship. I believe that is the right decision with abuse. But um, it carries on after that, it carries on into all their other relationships or into their relationship with their children or they themselves become angry or depressed or anxious as a result of the fear in their lives. Mm. So being able to extrapolate this this idea that fear and uh, that anger and and guilt, uh, fear and guilt, are the primary uh, painful emotions can be very very helpful. And I've seen people just uh, accelerate their recovery uh, or improve their recovery uh, because they grasp that concept. All right. How do we define? You said it's the right thing on balance in general to leave an abusive situation. How do you define abuse? Because this is changing. So if we look at things like the transgender movement of today and others where we're redefining things, a common argument from, let's say I'm married, I've been married for what 15 years. If I then uh, discovered I'm a transgender, I don't even know how to say it, woman. I, I, I'm actually a woman, right? The way that these people seem to argue would be, my wife needs to accept that I'm actually a woman. And for her to not accept is is abuse. For her to deny my true self and my true my, and my truth and my true reality and my lived experience mm. is harmful to me. So I this is my concern. If I was to leave my wife and kids and start a new life as a transgender woman, most of them don't admit to what they're doing. They don't say, "Look, this is devastating what I'm doing on 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 my family, and I'm I'm doing it anyway." They justify it and they mm. say, "No, no, no, you have to accept me." You're harming me by not affirming me. So how, how do you d define abuse when we are, we are moving these definitions everywhere? I could say it's abusive that you're not allowing me to express myself in this horrific way, you know? Yes. So I would argue that we need to talk about the opposite, not, not about the abuse, but what, what creates meaningful, trusting, caring relationships and environments. And then you can understand for you as a couple, you could understand what is, what is going to be destructive to that. And, but what we, do, we don't talk about love and acceptance and forgiveness in this space. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the space of, of um, crusading against domestic violence. Mm. But, but we should because most both survivors and victims, uh, survivors and perpetrators have been damaged in that, in the, that space. They, they don't understand how to love, they don't understand how to forgive and maybe they've never been loved appropriately themselves or forgiven or accepted themselves. So, so because those terms tend to be thought about as religious or whatever, um, the, the secular world won't go there. And one of the programs we ran was about promoting, it was called Promoting Peace in Families. And, and what we did a lot was through, um, through teaching and training and so on, we, we promoted the things that came together to make healthy relationships. 
can we apply what you've just said to my hypothetical? So if I'm now wanting to transition, I've got kids and a family and a long marriage, uh, and I'm saying you need to use my pronouns because when you misgender me or dead name me, you are doing violence against me. Mm. That's a modern, I think crazy, but a modern take. Mm. How do I think through, how do I, how do we approach the problem that's happening here when I'm saying my wife is being violent towards me by denying my true self? So if you were to rephrase that, so, so what you've done when you say that to your wife is that you have accused her of um, inappropriate behavior and you have claimed to be wounded yes. as a result. That's, a, that's yes. right, isn't it? Yes. So on the other hand, if, if you were to say, um, if we were to reframe it to you, you are going through a difficult time because your wife is treating you in a way that you feel mm. is unloving mm. and unkind. She, she says, well, when I married you, I married you because you were uh, a heterosexual male. Mm. I loved you for that. I loved you mm. for all sorts of other things. But, but you have now taken that away from me. So I feel, I feel abused and I feel unloved as well. Yes. So the issue is not so much your behavior or her response. The issue is that neither of you know how to deal and maybe nobody knows how to deal with a situation where uh, your claim where a person might claim that inadvertently you yeah. have you have created an unloving situation okay so I, I i guess what i'm arguing for is let's focus on what are we losing what's what's driving it what are we losing and how do we how do we respond in that context? Now, still, the response might be, the right response may be for you, for you as a couple, maybe to try to live together and and um, and become more accepting and more understanding. Having transitioned. Yeah. Okay. However, the other the other right might also be to recognise that the heterosexual relationship she dreamed about yes. is no longer possible right. and she's not prepared to accept that. And so we split. So I know of a couple who um, he announced that he was transsexual well into their their marriage when they had a, quite a, a big family. And, um, and she eventually uh, decided that she would she would embrace that and they would live like two women raising their children. But Yes, but now, like, I'm also, it's not a normal, like, I'm either forcing her into a lesbian relationship, a homosexual relationship, kind of, because I'm not really a female. But you know what I mean? Well, you're not forcing her if she just says, I like, I love you for all, a lot of other reasons as well. I love you because you're the children's father and... Uh, I am prepared, you know, it's going to cost you to transition, but I'm prepared to pay a cost to keep our marriage together. That's a possibility. I'm not saying it's the right thing. I'm just saying for some couples it's the right thing, and they do it. But she would have to accept us presenting to society as a lesbian couple. She would. and But if if you force her to do that, if you say, you know, if I go, I take the house, if I go, I take the kids... 
you know, if it's if it's if you forced her, then it's abuse. Right. If she she makes that decision, uh, then on her own, and she's allowed to do that, and you accept it. And if that decision is no, I can't live in this situation. I I need to move out, or I need need you to move out, and you were prepared to do that. That's fine. But if she said no, I will live with you. That's also her decision. What a messy world. It is a messy world, but we, we focus so much on, on um, prevention right. that, that, and it's a negative approach to prevention. Right. It's men get your act together, yes. which a lot of men have to do, yes. uh, but it's no recognition of the relationship dynamics, no recognition of what's going on for, that, for both those people and how they can change it. Okay, I'm I, I, excited to get into, um, it sounds macabre, but I'm excited to get into sex abuse in the church. But before we do that, uh, because people aren't really talking about it in a balanced way, it's just that the church is evil is all I hear, right? So, but first, can we take a side detour into COVID? I wasn't planning on doing this, but when you mentioned the two driving fears, fear and guilt and shame, mm. I feel like I've just witnessed a co-opting of those two emotions mm. in our society for the past three years. Can mm. you give me your perspective on what you saw for three years on those two emotions? Yes. Um, it seems to be a, a strongly effect, a, accepted fact in society that uh, COVID isolation has caused a great deal of PTSD, post-trauma um, issues and things like agoraphobia and other things have become a common factor that they're dealing with, particularly among teenagers mm. and particularly among teenage girls, mm. and uh, but boys too. And uh, it's, uh, it's um, so, so the fear, that's fear, and fears come out of the isolation, the fear of reconnecting, the fear of getting sick, the fear of making other people sick. It's been a real huge thing. And w when we were told things on, uh, by our politicians that we could travel five kilometres and no further, uh, that we had to isolate for long periods of time, that just that just pushed the fear up really strongly. The, the guilt factor, I think, came out of people feeling that they weren't able to support their families um, and do the things they used to be able to do, uh, feel they weren't productive, feeling that they were getting angry with each other because they were living in uh, very close situations. Mm. And, uh, and I think the the violence and hostility that came out of that uh, were driven by those two things. Yes, which and it's it's incredible. It only took two years, roughly, of of lockdown kind of stuff and, mm. and pandemic fear to cause massive massive devastation. But what about the um, the there's a way to communicate there are issues. There's a pandemic. It's going to kill us all. Whatever. Mm. Whatever. We don't need to. You know, science. But the way that I saw it being communicated through media, government, and through my friends, mm. I felt so guilty writing my 
push bike during lockdown mm. to 6Ks. Mm. But my loop was a bit longer than 5Ks, so I did. And is that illegal? Yes. But forget that for a moment. The heavy sense of guilt that is not there today when I ride 6, 7, 20Ks, um, that feels to me to have ramped up during that two-year period as well. Mm. We're constantly being told to to snitch, to report people, to look at people suspiciously, and also being, the, I feel like the fear has been overhyped. Maybe mm. not for you, you're a bit older than me, but I was told that I was about to die and I could be on a ventilator. There was a, a commercial with a young woman, a similar age to me in her 30s, mm. struggling mm. to breathe. And that may be for some, mm. but statistically speaking, I'm at a lower risk mm. than you. Mm. And yet I was told I, I was about to die. And the most fearful people that I know of COVID are my age or younger. Yes, that is correct. Mm. That's crazy. Uh, I think I think the only major fear that those of us who are older would have felt, and we didn't feel the isolation as much either because we didn't, we'd already stopped going out to work and, mm. and so on. But I think the greatest fear was they were saying quite regularly, we have to do these things to protect the aged. Mm. So the inference was that if you were 75 or more, you were more likely to die with COVID mm. uh, than, than younger people. So there was that sort of a fear, mm. I think. But it, it was amongst children, youth and uh, young adults, I think, that we're seeing, we're seeing the effects still. Mm. Uh, I was at uh, an event uh, on the weekend and... Uh, hearing about children in the Gippsland area, um, many of them in, in, in a particular school, uh, any particular school, they could say there were numbers of our kids who don't come to school regularly anymore because they're suffering from anxiety. Uh, so they're still seeing, you know, that some of them have taken up homeschooling because mm. they don't want to go out anymore. Mm. Does any of this, uh, do you feel any sense of dismay the way that our society, not just politicians, but our society, our media, our entertainment, everything presses the buttons of fear and guilt to sell things or get their agenda through? I, am, I, kept, I kept a list one time recently for three weeks of all the headlines on the morning news. And at least one of the major headlines every day was fear related and fear about the economic economic situation fear of uh, china fear yes. of uh, jobs being um, uh, fear of the not enough people to do all the jobs that were around yes. so we that was going to drive prices up and all that sort of stuff yes and uh, it was just incredible but the other thing was they had a lifespan of about three days so the fear run, it doesn't last. The it? headline. Oh, I see. Yeah. The headline yeah. was major, and then minor, and then disappear. Oh, I see. So it was. A, it was. It drove the fear for a day, and then the next day something else was driving it, and so on. It's just fascinating to watch it. To but, see it. That's correct, right? Because you can't keep a human in a heightened amygdala-based state for very long. You yeah. have to keep on stimulating it. Yeah, that's right, and they do. I mean. They, it's still the same. It hasn't mm. changed. Mm. When COVID is no longer the big subject, there are other subjects like, you know, um, the worsening 
economic situation. We know it's bad, but to be told every day that it's getting worse mm. um, and that people are going to have to sell their homes because they won't be able to afford to pay them. Mm. I mean, that there's a lot of very fearful people about that too. So how do you navigate this? Because let's say, for example, if we look at what, what I've seen some of the governments doing around around the world using fear to get compliance but then i've seen a resistance type people rising up saying screw you government i don't have to do what you want to do but also using fear as well to motivate their base yeah everyone's using the the authoritarian channels the libertarian channels the right-wing channels the left-wing channels we're doing the stupid thing and not getting many views compared to them because we don't inflame fear but but everyone's inflaming fear um how do you how do you how do you navigate that area because some people say don't watch the news don't mm. listen to radicals on the internet. Just just check out because they're all pushing fear. Mm. But then you're not engaged. No. I want to know what's happening. So how do I listen to one side saying COVID is going to kill my four-year-old? And how do I listen to the other side saying, hey, we need to maintain classical liberalism and our sense of human rights. And But they're all screaming at me that it's the end of the world. Mm. How do I navigate that space? It is very, very difficult to navigate it. That's why we've got a we've got an endemic of anxiety in our society. And But I think one of the things I find myself doing is to, not, not so much in a cynical way, but in a, I hope, I hope a realistic way saying, by the time the news gets to me, it's come through a number of channels, whether it be the media, whether it be, whether it be politics, whatever, and they all have their own particular agenda. And I'm the target yes. of that agenda, yes. but I have a mind and a heart and 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 a view and a perspective that's still valid. Yeah. And I need to just keep reminding myself that I can take this information and make my own choices about how I respond to it. So you still consume it, but you just yeah. do it carefully. So that's been my approach. I'm not saying I'm not saying everybody should have the same approach but that's been helpful for me all right before we get to um abu uh, abuse in institutions like the church let's talk about when you, you 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 talk to that psychologist and you had some breakthroughs and i guess over a period of time you can tell us but how did your relationship with your wife change where you were no longer reacting oh it was just amazing <laughs> and uh, um she under she understood straight away why I had acted the way I had, and accepted me and loved me for that, and uh, forgave me for any things that she might have felt were were wrong and hurtful. And um, but I think the biggest the biggest change was in me. One of the things uh, I felt. I went through this, told him the story, and it was just a great relief, and he gave me some really love, great tools to use. But on the way back in the plane, I remembered something. I remembered that in Australia, if I went out driving and I saw a big yellow transport truck with my abuser's name on the front. What? He was famous? No, no, just had the same oh, name. It's, it's, oh, I see. So whenever you went out, I saw my abuser's name. Yes, yes. That I could be going to speak at a meeting, uh, but I would be in tears just because I saw that. Oh, it was the trigger. Yeah. 
And on the, tr the plane coming back, I thought, as soon as I get back to Tullamarine, oh, yeah. I'm going to see one of these trucks yeah. and I'm going to find I'm no different than I was before yeah. I got my counselling. Yeah. And w when, I, when I got back, that, that happened, saw the truck, felt all the same pain I'd ever felt before. But, but this time it was different. I, was, I found myself thinking that in the years past this truck these trucks have been like tombstones yes and a tombstone reminds you of death and loss yes but that in my mind i felt god had changed the tombstone into a milestone a milestone and the milestone was those things marker you yeah. don't remember them because you're Every too young <laughs> but they were stones with white stones with numbers on them yes and when you pass one it told you how far you'd come yes since you passed the last one yeah and that's what my memories became. They became triggers to remember how far I'd come since I I got my healing or my release. Still painful. Still painful. But not debilitating. And that's right. And and over the years, the pain has become less and less, so it's negligible. So it sounds like a very quick, instant turnaround for you. For me, it was, and I think it, it not not because of any supernatural happening but more because i heard what i needed to hear i i, I got he taught me how to shift the blame that i carried onto my abuser hmm. which in a way intensified my anger when uh -huh. i did that i became very very angry because of i course. thought not only did this person abuse me but they also uh, sexually but they also took away my peace as yes. a person and, and my hope and my optimism and, uh, and my ability to control my emotions. So, I, I, you know, I was starting to blame them for every, everything. It's probably uh, a healthier progression, though, than what yeah. you were doing. Yeah. And then, then, then he said, the counsellor said, um, now let's talk about how you're going to deal with this anger because he knew he wasn't going to see me again. Yeah. He needed to give me some tools that weren't yeah. going to drive me crazy. And, uh, and so he, he raised the issue of forgiveness and forgiving my perpetrator. Ouch. And, of course, that made me angry too. Yes. But then he explained that forgiveness was not for the perpetrator. Forgiving the perpetrator was not to benefit the perpetrator. It was for me. It was to set me free so that I wasn't being dominated by the anger and the guilt that I felt. I was, I was releasing that. And, and it gave me a, a spiritual way of doing that was that God has forgiven me uh, and now I can pass that forgiveness on and be free of the blame and the shame. So two questions on this process he did with you. First of all, how, how can someone possibly, to forgive someone, to, to let them off the hook, so to speak, is, is what's in my mind here, it feels so impossible because if I let them go, who's going to get justice? The trouble is that in my case, I had spent 30 odd years believing that and that hadn't affected my perpetrator one little bit. But it had affected me. I was the one who was suffering because I was angry. All I was doing was not letting that person off the hook, 
I was, and it, if they were still alive, they would probably be in jail by now. Um, They're dead? Yes. Yep. But uh, I wasn't letting them off the hook. I was letting myself off the hook. But did they ever get justice before they died? I don't know. See, that's what I mean. So to, at least to a secular mind, which is my next question, but to a secular mind, he got away with it. So how do you think justice being done would have helped you in, that, in my situation? I'm not sure it's as well thought out as that. It's more that it's too anathema. The, the idea that he can get away with it is just not right. It's offensive. So someone has to make him pay. And if I can hold an offense against him in my heart for 50 years, at least that's something. Yeah, the reason he got away with it, or the, the abuser got away with it, was um, was because when I told my parents, they didn't believe me. So there was no, there was no, no attempt to bring the person to justice. Not that he got away with it. It was just w that in some way uh, society failed to bring him to justice. Society being my family, I suppose. Mm. Um, and I was, I was quite angry about that too uh, for a long, long time. Um, yeah, I know it sounds upside down, but the reality is, and this is another thing I think we need to learn, the reality is that remaining angry or remaining demanding justice is often like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. That is true, but I, I, I'm, I'm speaking from an emotional place. I'm not sure how you, if I put myself in that shoes, how you convince me to stop taking that poison. Mm. As in a secular mindset, mm. no one is going to get, there is no eternal damnation for this man. It's, I, have, I can't let go. How do you move someone who's talking like this to you in a, psycho, in a yeah. counseling session? I can't. Well, I suppose... Um uh, a lot of my, a lot of the viewers won't agree with this, but one of the things that I, I believe as a Christian, is that I have been undeservedly forgiven by God, right. and so that is His gift. And what convinced me was, if if Jesus said, "Forgive as you have been forgiven," there must be some, there must be truth in that. And when I did it, the experience was that I didn't feel like I'd let the person off the hook. I didn't feel like they got anything out of my forgiveness. Right. What I, I was thinking was I was free. And I no longer had to be afraid of middle-aged, powerful women because my abuser was a woman. Oh, I was thinking a man this whole yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> my abuser was a woman too. All right. All right. We just... We just we're Take hour. that for granted, <laughs> don't we? Um, and, and, and as a pastor, I, I found I, I lived in anxiety whenever I had to deal mm. with women I saw as powerful women. Oh. That went. And I, I didn't have to feel guilty anymore because, because I had embraced um, a commandment or a, an encouragement that enabled me to get get free yeah so that this is my second question you've taken us out of the secular space now into the faith or the religious space so those what about those who is the religious or the faith aspect required to do what we've well for you it was if you didn't have that it would be difficult although today in secular psychology forgiveness is being talked about a great deal more based on what 
Like, it doesn't make sense to me, forgiveness in a secular sense. Probably based on the, the comment that, that, well, when I say forgiveness, maybe, maybe they even use a different term in the sense, but it's based on, it's based on releasing the anger and the blame whatever way you, you're able to do that, whether it's religion or whether it's, yeah. whether it's some other med- meditation type thing but they, they try to help people refocus. Take your focus off the person who wounded you and off the issue of, of blame and shame and focus it on who you are and what your anger is causing you, how your anger is causing you to react to your family, how you're treating your wife and your children as a result of your abuse. Why should they pay the price? The question my psychologist asked me is, who's paying the price for your anger? Yeah. My, my, my abuser never paid the price. That's right. Um, we would say they should have, but it was my kids. And, and if I wanted my abuser to carry the responsibility for the abuse, then I needed to carry the responsibility for my reaction to the abuse, mm. which was to hurt other people around me. This is all true and valid. I just think it's it's weaker than simply, if you're a Christian, there's a creator God who loves me, is going is out for me, is forgive all what you've described. He's going to forgive me. I need to forgive them as He's forgiven me. There's an eternal uh, judgment, so on. Or if you believe in Allah, Allah will get him in the end. Or if you believe in karma, karma will. But the secular mindset of oh, just you know, it's not good for you. Just I just find that weak. That's all. Yes. Oh, look, I've, I've had lots of counsellors get very angry with me when I first uh, have taken them down this track and then even stump out of the counselling room, but they come back. And they keep coming back because they know that the biggest issue for them was not that they were abused 20 years ago. The biggest issue is the anger and the hatred that is growing inside them that is starting to wipe them out. Mm. It's not weak. You know, if... Uh, if you've got to drink every night because you're so depressed or so angry or you've got to, you've got to you attack your wife or your kids or you have road rage because you haven't dealt with that bitterness and hatred that's growing in your, in your mind and your heart, then it, it takes, it's very courageous and very strong to say, I'm going to shift that. I'm going to, to and maybe another Another way of verbalising it is to say, I'm no longer going to let this person who abused me control me 10, 15, 20 years later. They are, they are making me the man I, I am. But if we change that and say, I choose to accept responsibility for my own responses, then that becomes a focus. How can I... How can I stop being angry? How can I stop hurting the people around me? How can I stop hurting myself? I take your point. <clears throat> it's quite a strong thing to do. Hey, uh, abuse in um, institutional institutional abuse, specifically the church. Yeah. Oh, there's a problem there. Uh, why why is there abuse in institutions and specifically in the church? Because also you've um, uh, been in church your whole life and you've been leaders, a leader of a large church. What? What's going on there? Because we, we imagined in the power dynamic. So you've got your altar boy being abused by the priest. There's a power dynamic. And we've just kind of 
dismantled that idea, the, the power dynamic idea, right? What's going on with the um, institutional child sexual abuse compared to all the other forms of abuse we've been talking about? I suppose we have to uh, think about it both from individuals' points of view and also from an organisational point of view. And so it's quite complex and quite, it's quite a difficult subject. Um, and I think your use of the word institution is good because it was religious institutions and it was also government institutions. The Royal Commission focused on, mainly focused on religious institutions. And um, there are stats you can see of um, which denominations rated the highest. And uh, the denominations that seemed to rate the highest were the ones who did the most in the field of um, education institutions and and uh, homeless institutions and orphanages and that sort of thing. And um, so they had, there was access to, the, to children wow. and access without accountability. So one of the organisational problems has been the lack of accountability and also the fact that people use their power to, to hide what was happening rather than to expose what was happening. And so you had instances where priests and ministers were being shifted to other, other parishes and so given other opportunities to continue the behaviour without being held accountable. Why, why does it happen in religious institutions as well as in sexual institutions? I would say it, 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 is, it is because in both institutions you've got people who um, who are impacted by sexual issues that have changed their perspective and enabled them or caused them to feel like children, sexual relationship with children is what will satisfy their needs. What do you, what do you mean by that statement? I'm not following. Um, well, I think, I think a, lot, a lot of the people I've talked to um, who have perpetrated sexual abuse would say that they were sexually attracted to children when they were 12 years old. Right. But often they would say from 12 to 20 plus, they never offended because there was no opportunity. But hang on, if you're a 12 year old attracted to a 12 year old. No, you'd be a 12 year old attracted to little children. Oh, five or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but when they got to their 20s and they were, became priests or teachers or, or pastors, these same people who were conscious of this attraction all their, their teenage life now have opportunity mm. to fulfil it. And I remember, I actually tell the story in the book, but... Which book? Uh, Guilt Busters. Which people can buy at the, your website, which will be linked below. Yeah. Um, it's actually a novel written in the shadow of the Royal Commission. This is? Yes. Oh. So all the stories... Fictional. Are, all, the, all the stories are true. 
Oh, I see. Uh, but there are fictional pl- aspects and places well, to uh, digestible. Yeah. Um, so, so a priest in that in that book says says to the person he accu- who accused him says, "Oh, you know, don't don't kid yourself that you were the the first because you were the, there was anything about you." You were the first because it was my first opportunity. I see. And uh, now I'm not saying this to justify it in any yep. sense of the word. Yep. It is unjustifiable, as you would expect, I would say, as a survivor. Yes. But but at the same time, you're asking me why does that happen? Yes. Opportunity. And, and I and I think I think some abuse happens not so much because of power, although I'll come back to that in a minute. Not so much because of power, but because of of uh, inappropriate sexual attraction to children that they have not dealt with, that they have not sought help for, and they've not been control and it's not not controlled. The power issue is that power gives them opportunity, right? And p- power often gives them opportunity without accountability, right? So in my case, I'm a primary school kid in a primary school, and so my my teacher is able to to keep me in uh, at playtime. Yes. For her purposes. Yes. Not because I've done anything wrong. Yes. Power. Uh, that's power. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, thinking back, I think she she came across as a, to most people as a normal human being. Mm. But when I was being abused, she was, she was an obsessive, compulsive, driven, sexual deviant. So it was a teacher you were abusing. Yes. Okay. Mm. So okay. So if it's the case that it's more, it, it's the opportunity that gives rise to the actual abuse taking place. But they may have have um, deviant um, attractions pre-existing, mm. which may or may not have the opportunity to express themselves. What about the argument that something like a religious institution attracts, specifically attracts those with deviant sexual responses? So those who might be attracted to young children might be attracted to go into the Catholic Church is the accusation mm. or any church. What, what's, is that a thing? Is that real? Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think the statistics would indicate um, that the Catholic Church had the largest problem, the Anglican Church had the next largest problem, the Salvation Army had the next largest. And in all of those cases, all of those situations, the, there was no, nothing in the training or the, the recruiting of clergy that would have ever exposed that problem. Right. So if, if the children themselves, if the, if the potential, the future abusers themselves were abused and they were abused in a similar context, they knew that that's where they would get their, the, um, the access to children. So it's the access. So, so we're not talking about the, <coughs> the ideology, the faith ideology no, attracting. I, there is, in fact, if they took their faith seriously, the concept of, abusing anybody for any reason or any type of abuse is is condemned in Jesus' teaching. 
He says, love one another as I have loved you. And all the, about being kind and being gentle and being humble and all those things are what we teach. There's nothing there that would in any way vindicate or, or um, promote sexual violence. So it's not a faith issue, it's a sexual deviant issue, and, but the church then, more so than now, provided that lack of accountability and that lack of, of proper process that prevented it. Allow me to put on my cynical hat for a moment. Yep. For the secular person who's anti, anti-faith, anti-religion, who thinks it's just God, fairy man in the sky coping mechanism. I've heard the general feeling from them that religion is used as a crutch or a cover for a myriad of issues. But on this sexual abuse issue, it's specifically, it's the ideology is used to justify those heinous sins. So for example, you believe in your fairy man in the sky god who can forgive you for um, raping a five-year-old. And that's why people are attracted to religion because they're dumb. They don't believe in enlightenment scientific empiricism and they are using religious dogma to justify their deviant behavior that is um in my experience quite a common view amongst the secular crowd so they're, they're actually attributing the ideology of faith systems as drawing yes. deviant people do you yes. have anything to say to that i i think you've got to um to, to, to make the argument fair so that there's, we deal with the biases that we might have one way or the other, whether it's a bias in protecting religion or a bias in attacking religion, I, 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 think, I think what we'd have to say is you've got to first look at the teachings of, of Jesus and therefore the teaching that the church is committed to. I'm not saying they always do it well, um, any more than the education department always do education well, uh, but nevertheless uh, there is the teaching and the teaching of the church and the New Testament teaching and, and the, the, the very stringent call to the way we treat people and relate to people is probably on the surface would indicate that it should be the safest organization in the world okay should be however what we're dealing with is not that we're dealing with the actions of individual people who found their way into the church and and uh, look in, in days past it wasn't all that difficult to put your hand up and say i've decided to be a priest or a yeah. pastor nobody put you through the grid nobody asked uh, about your background, nobody asks about your sexual um, uh, preferences, whatever. Yeah. Um, you were never checked on that. You were never taught counselling, for instance. You were just taught theology, and 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 so for someone who's got the wrong reasons for joining the priesthood or the ministry, it's not hard. And, and like most people who have some sort of deviance, they've already convinced themselves that it's everybody else that's wrong right. and they're right and what they feel is right and what they feel is appropriate 
many of them actually believe that. Uh, one man I interviewed, one priest I interviewed said that he, um, he believed the children enjoyed what he did. He did wow. it for the children. Uh, and while I listen to that and that's screwy, uh, oh, sorry, wrong term. Um, uh, he thought it was normal. Is that common or uncommon? That oh, that's common. That's co the, yeah. uh, the abuser justifying justifies their. But let's go to the theology. So Christianity is unique from others in that you have a judge like like Islam, but you have a redemption narrative, right? So you've got. The, the Pauline gospel could very easily be used to justify, uh, God forgives me for sexually abusing that eight-year-old. Yeah, that, that, that is true. You can't argue with that. That's true. But, but you, the, the concept of forgiveness in the Bible is li linked to repentance so that you can't just cover up consistent sinning by consistent confession. Now, the Catholic Church promoted that yes. in, pa in past years, not so much now. Yes. And so somebody went on doing the same thing all the time and confessing and then feeling good. Yes. That is not a biblical position. Oh. There's no... No, no verse in the Bible that says, doesn't matter how often you sin, as long as you confess, you're okay. What it does say is that if you repent of your sin, which means turning around and going the other way, it means stopping doing it, not doing it anymore. Um, then you confess it and then God forgives. So if we were to take a verse, you know, if we confess our sins to him or to, to one another, I can't remember which one of the verses, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Yeah. You're saying that's a misapplication to take that into a cycle. Yes, definitely. Okay. Now, now if, if I sin in a particular way and I confess, I repent and I confess that sin, the fair chances are that a couple of days later I'm going to sin in a similar way because I'm changing a habit. Yeah. Uh, I think that 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 happens, but the concept that I can sin a sin that is against the the tenets of the Bible is against what God has taught us in the Bible, and then and then confess that and then go back and keep doing it and using it as a cover. There is no justification for that. What what would happen in um, in the church? I'm in the church. I'm uh, I identify with is if that occurred, a uh, pastor would be immediately uh, stepped down and uh, stripped of any capacity to minister in that church. Not because that's God sees one sin worse than another, but because that is a sin against a child and against a person, another person, in the name of God, and it's not acceptable. So the secular understanding that I raised earlier is is incorrect. Seeing uh, seeing religion as a get out of jail free card, where does that come from? Is that because we haven't the religious institutions haven't taught the redemption narrative properly, like the Catholic Church was doing that cycle for so long? Probably goes back a very long time. I don't know uh, uh, how far back, but if you go back, say, to the fifteen hundreds, where 
the, um, the selling of indulgences became the way they raised the money to build the big cathedrals, you know. Pre-pay your sins. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that became the, the scandal that led to the, the Reformation. Uh, and that's, that's where the, the uh, big wars came in, in Europe and mm -hmm. Britain over, over Catholic governments and Catholic churches working together mm -hmm. to, to suppress those like Luther and Calvin and mm -hmm. Tyndale mm -hmm. and others who said, this is, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably it was a hangover from that. Uh, nowadays, I'm glad to say that the Catholic Church has, has um, accepted, like other churches have had to do, yes. accepted accountability for what occurs and doesn't allow that attitude to prevail. Okay. All right. But it's a good discussion, and I, I'm sure people are yelling at the, at the computer right now, but... <laughs> uh, I think we've been pretty measured. <laughs> good. <laughs> I think what they've been annoyed about is that when you raise these issues, as I've raised them with you, if you were to represent the Christian um, superstructure, because you've been working in it for so long, they're annoyed that you guys don't admit to issues. Oh. That's the, and you've been very open. But most I, people are like, no, no, that, that, that wasn't us. Well... I happen to think that that the whole church has moved theologically away from what Jesus had in mind when he established the church. And I have just written another book about that. Can you um, explain that thought? Uh, Jesus gathered a group of people together and he said, you've seen what I've done, you've heard what I've said, you believe that I am God's son, Go out into the world and, and tell others and baptise them, make followers, make disciples, go and do that. It was as simple as that. Today we have very complex organisations with very complex, uh, with huge buildings, huge property, complex governance and, and we are trying in the midst of all that to... to be the church in a modern community with changing, changing um, standards and cultural standards. And, and we have left behind the simplicity of just sharing God's message of love and forgiveness with the world. And so instead of loving one another as, we, we, as Christ has loved us, we've got several, hundred, several thousand different denominations in the world, several hundred churches in the one city and and all competing with one another and sometimes criticizing one another. That that doesn't sound like the New Testament to me at all. And uh, we elevate clergy uh, where the Bible says that those who are given leadership are to lead by humility. But we, we elevate them, we dress them up in robes and make them look as if they're different from the rest of us. We give, we give authority to clergy that, that I don't think the Bible even talks about. Okay. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't give me as a, a secular person an excuse to walk away from the church. What it does is it should give me a reason to go back to the Bible and say, what did God have in mind? And, and how has time and evolution, the, um, 
the social evolution, how has that changed the picture of that? And every now and then we find a church where, where, where the emphasis gets refocused. And you know, the church I go to talk about um, talks about being Christ in every place. It means it's about people going to their workplaces and just living a Christian life, loving other people, honouring people, caring for people, responding to needs. And, and that's the church. But, and that's what Jesus modelled when he washed the disciples' feet and all those sorts of things, when he healed the sick and so on. What he was doing was he was demonstrating that this world would be changed only by love, humility and forgiveness, not by power. Mm. And, and what I, w I would not work away, walk away from the church because I see some bad examples of that. I see the good examples and I know it still works. Uh, Graham, in your work as in psychology and um, counselling, did you see a disparity between uh, those of faith, any faith, Christian, Islam, whatever, and, those, and, and the secular? I'm looking for congruences and patterns between that, can, that could be predictive for abuse and violence depending on faith systems or secularism. Um, I honestly don't think so um, because as a counsellor you tend to f be focusing on the particular uh, drivers in that particular person. So for instance I might be counselling I think of a young man that the court sent me that had, had gone to court for sexual abuse and uh, I think his story measured exactly with the story of the of the swimming instructor at the swimming pool who did the same things. Uh, but they each had individual dynamics that had brought them to a place of moral irresponsibility or sexual deviance or whatever it might be, and they had not sought to deal with that. So they they acted out of it rather than corrected it. So faith of any description is not really a mediating, mitigating factor in your Oh no, I, I, I don't think so. I think, I think unfortunately, um, we, were, we were made more aware, no, we are aware that a lot of abuse went on in churches, but I, I would say it wasn't the faith issue, it was it was, it was the choices of individuals who found the, and, and what the church did unwittingly and unavoidably was to give them the opportunity by, you know, just the same way as a lot of abusers are scout leaders. Which is a, a, a non-faith thing, right? Scouts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So why would they do that? Why would they become a scout leader? Access. Yeah, access. And and that's what the church provides. So Nowadays, we have very, very strict rules, okay. as you know. Um, you have to have, um, you're working with children's certificate, you have to have two people uh, with one child at any particular time, yep. and uh, then you have accountability up the line. Okay. And uh, if you fail to exercise that accountability as a 
as an upline leader, then you are held responsible for, to some extent, for what happened. Okay. But none of that ever existed. So that's the solution, is, is accountability and, and access control. Of course. I, I, and I think uh, for, for all of us, a, a, re, a rethink about the quality of life, quality of living that God calls us to. And uh, if we all live like that, the world would be a very different place. But uh, not everybody understands that. They go to church and they don't understand that. They, they go to church because they went there as kids and they keep going, or they go to church because uh, they think it's the right thing to do. They go to church because they have friends there. But the, the, the real reason that I belong to the church is that, that I'm a child of God and I want to live like that. And I, I think that that's what the Bible teaches. Fascinating conversation. I think uh, I'm thinking about asking you some hypotheticals to end it out for 10 minutes or so. Okay. So, because you're only a couple of years on me, slightly more advanced than I am in this journey of life, but I'd like to get some of your experience and wisdom. So I'd <laughs> more like than to, half, actually. <laughs> I'd like to know your... Uh, look, I interviewed a 15-year-old um, guy here once. Uh, new, he has a little sh news channel called Six News. Oh. And... Um, he made me feel old. He said, Matt, you are more than twice my age. <laughs> 37. Uh, no, but if we look, if you look back on your life, uh, this is your life, Graham Can. What, what do you, can you tell me about some of your regrets, some of your wins, some of the lessons you've learned? What are the things that you would say to someone who might be, you know, this is enshrined in the State Library of Victoria. Somebody may look you up in 100 years. Mm. What would you say to those people? I think my only regret is that when I went into the ministry 62 years ago, nearly twice your age, um, I, um, I inherited a model of church, as each generation does. And as I look at the church today, I don't think my generation has changed it much. Really? In 60 years? Oh, you know, we've tweaked the music and we've, yep. uh, we've modernised things a little bit and we've tried to adapt to a modern society. But I'm not really talking about... I don't think it's so much about adapting to changes. It's more that we, we've, we continued the, the movement away from what I think the scripture teaches about the church and, and those of us who perhaps at some point in the journey became aware of that um, I think found the the machinery of the church so strong and so powerful and so set in its ways that it was difficult to change so if I have a regret it would be that if I have if I have uh, a lot of joy and happiness about any of it, it would be, I think that the church is far more today aware of, uh, of the relevance of the, the gospel to real life. I think we are applying biblical truth more now to, to real issues. So that, that's good. And I think that's happened 
to one of the things that that I had the privilege to be part of, which was the founding of uh, the Christian Councils Association of Australia, uh, that now has many, many hundreds of councillors, all with double degrees in theology and psychology, mm -hmm. uh, all accepted by secular organisations like PACFA, the Psychological and Counselling Federation of Australia, and uh, that we are offering models of counselling that I think help people in a holistic way and not, not just in a, in a, a, a psychological way. Suitable for non-Christians? Yes, oh, very much okay. so. Yeah, very, very good counselling. So I'm very thrilled about, about that. And I am very excited about the younger generation rising up. And the last book I wrote, which we didn't bring in. No. Nope. Uh, no, that it's not being published at the moment. Oh. Is on the church. And I've written that uh, with the purpose of, um, of giving young, the younger generation permission to, to look at what they've inherited and then to look at the scriptures and say, do we need to change? Do we need to go back, not back to the way things were done, but the why the things were done? Well, well Graham, I'm sorry to say we are doing that. Gen Z, my generation and younger, we are, but we're doing it by painting rainbow flags on the front door and debasing scripture and just... Oh, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. So we're, we're willing to change things. Yeah. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, uh, I was talking about the younger generation in a limited way. I was talking about the young church men and women that I know, and I'm very excited in their potential. But there's always the danger, and the thing I'd be praying for to my last day, I suppose, is... It always the danger of like like secular society we get shaped by the loudest voice and the loudest part of our culture what about putting the church aside which i guess is difficult it's been your whole life but putting putting um, religion aside for a moment and just as a human looking back in your life do you have any regrets or, or wins something you would tell a non-church goer um a lesson from your life what would you tell a young person today who I suppose uh, not getting help earlier with uh, with my the um, my responses to sexual abuse uh, and not finding the answers that we've talked about already. Uh, I think that, that was a regret, and I would say to particularly to men, um, you know. Don't put off looking for help when you know that you've got issues. And you know you've got issues when people start to reflect that back to you and, and when you get sacked from your job or you, you, you get out of your car and bash somebody up or you yell at them out the window or you yes. swear at them under your breath. It doesn't matter what. Yeah. You know you've got some issues you should see about those. So that would be a regret. The, the joy has been that I've been able to minister to lots of people like that over the years and, and help them. Uh, apart from that, I, I don't really have regrets. I, might, I mean, from a day on a day-to-day -day basis, you, you can see you could have done something a little bit better, you could have responded in a, a better way, could have done a better interview, whatever it might be, um, but but I choose not to live with those regrets. I choose to 
to if I if it's something I should ask somebody for forgiveness for and God forgives but so do so do other people and uh, I should do that I should repent if I've hurt somebody and uh, hopefully I've learned to do that a lot better than I did when I was a young man. All right, last question. What what would be the greatest piece of advice you've ever received? And from who? Could be a book you've read, could be anything. Could be a real person. The greatest, the, the uh, most helpful model um, that I've been given is everybody is worth understanding and that guides and governs the way I see the world. It challenges me every time I want to be critical, challenges me when I'm faced with accepting people's different perspectives because behind everybody there is a backstory and that backstory has more to do with how a person behaves, good or bad, than their family or their culture. Think about that. You, if you, if you had podcasts back in your day when you were my age, you, I'd, I'd be saying to you, you need to start a podcast like this. I think you'd be very curious and very good at doing something like this. Mm. Yeah. Graham Cann, thank you very much for being here. If people want to check out your books, they can at your website, which is... Um, or in the description below, but for the people who are just listening, mm. tell me what your website address is. Oh, the website is is just if they go to grahamcan.com. Yep, which is C-A-N-N for can. And G-R-A-E-M-E for Graham. Is there another Graham? Oh, oh H. Lots of them. Is there? <laughs> H-A-M-E. Yeah, so G-R-A-E-M-E-C-A-N-N.com. Uh, thank and the you. bookshop is there. The bookshop is there. Thank you much for being here, sir. I'm excited to um, get this one out. Thank you for sharing your, your experience. And for those of you who are listening in, thank you for being part of the Discernible Interviews. Uh, once again, we are here because of a few awesome people I just want to say thank you to, for the people at discernible.locals.com. Very small crew that uh, make these interviews happen. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.